Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come together. We thank you so much for this last semester uh, to be able to study and fellowship and to learn from your word and learn about what's going on in the world, Father. And so we ask that you, uh, uh, that you would bless our time now, that you would teach us your word, and that you would illuminate us to your word so we can live it out before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so with the doctrine of rewards, let's get to another parable that teaches about rewards. And it's the parable of the wedding feast. And you might be familiar with it. I've talked about the parable of the wedding feast uh, numerous times, but I've never actually didactically taught it um, so that we can understand the rewards aspect of this parable. This parable typically is misinterpreted because there's, a, there's two features in the parable. There's a feature of, of an invitation to salvation, but then there's a second feature that deals with rewards. And what typically happens People that come from a more reformed or even uh, Arminian background will typically look at this parable and not see the one-two punch in it, but it will only interpret it in one instant in it being a soteriological passage for salvation, which, which I think that does the, the parable a, a disservice. First of all, let's, let's start with the context. You're, you're in Matthew, number one. So Matthew is a Jewish book. Okay? It was written to the Jews, so it has a Jewish flavor to it, and it uses uh, many Jewish idioms that you'll even find within the, the wedding feast parable. There's a lot of Jewish idioms. I'll unpack those. The other thing about Matthew is Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written to believers. Okay, Only John's gospel is written as an evangelistic track. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written for discipleship orientation purposes. They're written for the believer. So when you read, when you read the Gospel of John, that's the, 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 the gospel you want to give to an unbeliever to read. Tell them the start in the Gospel of John. But if you're starting with Matthew with an unbeliever, Matthew then expects you to know the whole Old Testament background because that's what Matthew's imploring into the text. And, and so you have to know what book of the Bible you're in to know the overall context. So since you're dealing with Matthew, since it's a Jewish book, and since it's written to believers, probably 98% of the applications are meant for believers and not unbelievers, okay? There's a few hints here and there about an outreach of salvation, like in this parable, you'll see, but most of it is focused more on discipleship orientation, okay? So that's the overall context. Then when you get into the, the, the parable of wedding feasts, the overall context then is Messiah's ministry is starting to wrap up with his ministry. Uh, well, with his ministry to Israel, it is already ended as far as his, his offering of the kingdom to them. They have rejected that. And now he has done uh, a, a job of, of uh, building up the apostles for the church. Okay, so... Matthew 22 comes late in his ministry in that sense in the fact that um, he's going to explain what has happened to Israel and then he's going to explain what the disciples are going to do and, he's going to dis and then move on from there to a personal application for discipleship is the, the overall context, okay? So um, let's start with uh, uh, another piece of background that you need to understand. 
When you're dealing with wedding language, uh, uh, that this is uh, uh, very pronounced in the Old Testament of an eschatological reality of the culmination of the Messianic kingdom, which would be celebrated by a wedding feast or some type of feast, an eschatological feast, okay? And that was in the minds of all Jewish people, right? That, that when Messiah rules and reigns, they're gonna have this great feast. Even Jesus mentions this feast. Um, and, and then we know it now uh, more, more, more uh, detailed as the marriage supper of the Lamb. But in the Old Testament, it was just this culmination feast of the Messianic kingdom, a, a wedding feast, if you want to call that. But, but because the church or the bride of Christ was a mystery, it, the bride of Christ was not spoken of, so it wasn't called the marriage supper of the lamb. It was just called the feast of God or a, a wedding feast type of thing. But it is an eschatological reality in the minds of all Old, New, all Old Testament believers and Jewish believers in that, in that sense, and it's related to the messianic reign. So when Jesus implores this, he's referring to the messianic reign. So then he starts off in verse two, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Now, one of the things that you wanna make sure that when you see the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God mentioned in the other gospels, uh, it is not two different things. The reason he's using kingdom of heaven is because the Jews won't pronounce God's name. That's all, even today, they won't say God's name, they won't say Yahweh, they will say Hashem, which means the name, or they'll spell it G-D, right? Or Adonai, Elohim, but they will not use the name of God. And so in Matthew, since it's written to Jews, you can see why he doesn't say the kingdom of God, he says the kingdom of heaven, which would be a reference to that, but it's, it's a, a, a more polite Jewish way of saying that without pronouncing God's name. So that's why, so don't, don't get caught up on kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, and that, that's just not understanding the Jewish background uh, when people try to make a distinction between the two. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Notice, there's two powers in the story. This is very Jewish, because in the Jewish theology, they had a concept of the Godhead, and they had to wrestle with the fact that there were two entities uh, not entities, I should say, two identities, I'm sorry, two identities that were both Yahweh and the Old Testament. They, call, they called them the two powers. And obviously one was the word of God, but they noticed that one Yahweh could converse with the other Yahweh. And you'll have like Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Or in the situation of Sodom and Gomorrah, you have one Yahweh talking to Abraham that calls down another Yahweh to call down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. So you had the two powers, the two Yahwehs, and the Jews had to wrestle with that. They, and, and a lot of them had a hard time with it, so a lot of them just kind of buried it. And, and didn't really deal with it. Even the word echad, uh, the two shall become one, or the hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is echad. It means a composite unity. It doesn't mean a singular personality. It means a composite unity. And, and they, they knew that. And so when you start seeing this marriage stuff, all of a sudden you see a father and then now you see a son, it's referring to the two powers of the Old Testament that they knew were Yahwehistic and they had to contend with it. And a lot of them just, like I said, didn't want to deal with it. So it wasn't like the Trinitarian concept was developed in the New Testament. There's no doubt it was flushed out. But the concept of the Godhead, even Paul mentions the Godhead term in Romans chapter 1, was an Old Testament concept. 
So in, in the parable, Jesus is referring to the two, the, the, those two figures and that being the son and the father, okay? Obviously, we have the, the Holy Spirit as a reference, but again, it was, it was mainly the two powers that we're thinking about. So, the mar- so he arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. So the eschatological wedding, the messianic age, okay? And, and, and the, the wedding, which represents the messianic age, they didn't know how long the messianic age would go for. And many of the Old Testament prophets, they believed it lasted forever, which it does in, in one sense. But what we now know from Revelation 21 and 22 is that the messianic kingdom actually goes into eternity. And so eternity actually has two phases. The first phase is the messianic kingdom, which lasts a thousand years, and then we go from the messianic kingdom into eternity forever, and Jesus rules and reigns forever. So eternity actually has two phases, and that's what the New Testament revealed that was a mystery to the Old Testament. So when, when they say they were invited to a wedding, they knew that this, this eschatological reality would happen one day. They just didn't know how long it would go. They just assumed it would last forever, and that was a good assumption, and it... And, and, and it, 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 it uh, Obviously now know in Revelation 20, it lasts a thousand years. Anyway, and they were not willing to come. So there's the Calvinist problem. When the Calvinist says there's such a thing called unconditional election, that God chooses who he's going uh, to save, and you have no way to resist that, and you, you cannot resist him, he has an irresistible will, what do you do with this verse? Because it says they weren't willing to come even though they were called and invited to come. You got a problem all of a sudden, right? Because it shows you that the invitation that God gives out can be resisted, and it was, because they were not willing to come according to their own will. Now, what does this refer to? This, this part of the passage refers to the Old Testament prophets that called on Israel to come to faith, okay? Uh, and this goes all the way back from Moses all the way through uh, the major and minor prophets, and this is what Jesus is referring to, that God has been extending its, his call to Israel to come to him so they can experience this eschatological uh, event, uh, the kingdom age. But yet, for the majority of the point uh, of time and the majority of Israel had not there was always a remnant, always a remnant that came, but it was always small. It didn't, the whole nation wouldn't come, and as, a, 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 and as a broad stroke, the nation just kept rejecting Yahweh and yet rejecting Yahweh and his call. Okay, so that's the first part of what the parable means, that Israel has rejected its prophets, okay? Again, so now another time, another reissuing of an invitation comes out. He sent out other servants, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. So all things are ready. Everything that needs to be done has been accomplished and will be done, and uh, you need to come to the wedding because it's about ready to happen. And this passage, this verse 4, is a reference to Jesus and his disciples, John the Baptist, and into the book of Acts, okay? And tell those who are invited, obviously Israel. Uh, this was uh, said to the, uh, 
uh, to the disciples when the, the Syrophoenician woman came up to him uh, and she tested, or he tested her and said, look, I've only been sent to the, 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 the lost children of Israel. I've only sent the lost tribes of Israel. I haven't been sent to you. Um, but she pushed through, right? even the dogs or the puppies eat the crumbs off the master's table. But in Jesus' ministry, his ministry was focused in on regaining Israel back. And yet Israel wouldn't. They wouldn't come back, even through his disciples. And so we have a, a one-two punch. you got the prophets, and then you have John the Baptist, the Messiah, and the, the apostles, all the way through into the book of Acts, offering Israel a chance to be part of this messianic reality, this messianic kingdom, and, because everything's ready. But the result was, but they made light of it. And they went their ways, one to his farm, another to his business. Now, in verse 5, let's unpack that a little bit. They made light of it. So they, they were indifferent to their own Messiah. They were indifferent to the call that Messiah put out, that John the Baptist put out. They were indifferent. And they went their ways. And, 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 and basically, they went about going, one goes to his farm, another goes to his business. Now, what you have to understand is the Hebraic background on this and how insulting this is. Okay, so if you were in the Near East or the Middle East and a king or even a nobleman had invited you to a wedding and you didn't accept the invitation because you just had other things to do, that was about the rudest thing you could possibly do to somebody is not go to a wedding and because you were fooling around with your oxen or you, you had a, a field to plow or something like that. That was like the height, the height of, of rudeness, not to go. So what you, what you don't see in this text is how rude verse 5 is making them out to be. Because if a king invited you and he, he said, stand on your head and whistle Dixie, you did it. Because that's, that's was, you, you couldn't deny that call because it was such a great invitation. You were invited to the palace. This was great. This was a great honor for you. And this would be, you know, in a, in a world where honor is a big deal, you wanted to be invited to these things because it, it honored you. And, and, and this is how you saved face. If you weren't invited to these things, you had no honor. So the fact that the king is even issuing the honor to you should be humbly submitted to and saying, wow, what a great honor. You're inviting me into your palace? Yeah, it is. But what are they doing? I'd rather go mess with around with my farm. I want to go do my own business, right? So you have a part of Israel that is completely indifferent to God, okay? And you can make the same analogy today with the church. Uh, the Laodicean church is completely indifferent to God. You know, they add Jesus. Like you'll see on Sunday morning, on, uh, you know, you'll have an increase of attendance here, uh, like in every church, because why? It's Christmas. But then you won't see them for the next six months. Or maybe you'll we'll see them for Easter. I'm sorry, they go Christmas and Easter, right? Or whatever. Or, or, or someone's getting baptized or something like that, they'll come. But they're indifferent, right? Because they, 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 they say, yes, I'm a believer, but Christ is not part of their lives. They're just indifferent to him. That's how he's saying how Israel was treating him in this invitation. 
But then he goes, there's another side, though, that actually got violent. And it got really mad. And the rest of them seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. Okay? So this is, you can go all the way back to the prophets, and you can go back, obviously, to um, what happened to the stoning of Stephen. You can go back to what they did to the Messiah. You can go back to, you know, uh, persecution of the apostles. Every apostle ended up getting martyred, except for John. Um, and so this is where he's, he's referring to that they even got violent. They were so mad about this invitation that they got violent about it and, and destroyed the ones delivering the message. And isn't that funny? That's the same thing that you guys can say today, that why do they hate you so bad? Why did Christ said, say they, they will hate you? Why? Because they hate him. The reason they hate you is he says because they hate me. So don't be so shocked when they do hate you and they get mad at you for telling the truth. They will get violent with you. Some will be indifferent and they don't care, but others will get really raging mad. Like the idiots that painted our sign that said death to Israel. That's a person like this, right? That's, that's what we're talking about. They get violent. They want to harm people. And so there's an element in Israel that did that to them, obviously. Okay, so what's, what's the king's reaction, though? Verse 7. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. Yeah, I could see why. Because remember, it's a great insult to not accept the king's invitation to a wedding and then to even go further and hurt his own servants that were delivering the invitations to you. He's furious, okay? And what did he do? And he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. What historical reference is that referring to then? Because it's, he's, he's talking about history. He's actually making a, a prophecy here. When did, when did Jerusalem, what's their city? Jerusalem, right? When did Jerusalem get burned up and a 1.2 million Jews die? 70 AD. So he's referring to this. So even in the, in the time that the king gives them, 70 AD, you go back to the, the resurrection and the crucifixion, which happens in 30 AD. So what we have is a 40-year time gap in the book of Acts that, that Messiah gives Israel a chance to come back to him before the unpardonable sin. And many of the Jews do, not, not all, but many of them do, and they become part of the church, and they get saved and whatnot, and many of them uh, who will get baptized and, and, and identify with the Messiah will escape the, the, the penalty of this, but many of them didn't. They continued in their rejection, and the unpardonable sin, the blasting of the Holy Spirit, which is their rejection of the Messiah, the physical punishment came in 70 AD with Titus destroying uh, you know, uh, Jerusalem and the temple. And I, I just took a couple weeks there. I, I saw the boulders right off the side of the temple. I saw them right there. He says, not one stone will be left on another. And they are, there they are 2,000 years later as a testimony of this judgment. They scraped, they scraped the whole pl- uh, top of the temple mount Uh, They destroyed it because, you know, what happened is the temple had inlaid gold all inside of it from Solomon. And the Romans lit that thing on fire, and it melted the gold. But the gold then went and seeped down into the crevices of the temple and into the rocks, 
Well, the Romans are not going to let that sit there, right? So the Romans go after the gold, and in order to get the gold, they had to crack the rocks open and break the rocks, and then the Romans are actually the ones who, who cracked them open and shoved them off the side of the, the Temple Mount platform in order to get to the gold and left the top bare. But that's why when you go to the southern end of the western wall, um, you can see the, the cracked boulders and, and stones that were left uh, pushed off by the Romans, left there from 70 AD as a witness to this judgment. Now, this is what you have to understand in the, whole, in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Otherwise, you'll mis uh, misunderstand the book of Acts. Okay, So, the unpardonable sin is committed by Israel. The unpardonable sin is a temporal, national judgment on the nation. Okay, It's not a personal sin, even though personally you could do it, but you could escape this national judgment by coming to faith in the Messiah and being baptized Okay, for a Jew. Okay, And, and, um, and so many people mistake the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as, as a, a sin that someone today can commit. No, the only unforgivable thing you can do is not believe in Jesus. If you don't believe, that, then you're lost. There's nothing, there's nothing God can do for you at that point in time because he's already, he, behold the Lamb of God who's taken away the sins of the world. He's already taken away the sins of the world. You just have to believe. And so, and if you don't believe, then there's nothing else left for you, okay? But blasting the Holy Spirit is a contextual, historical judgment, Okay, now, let me explain something. Let me divert, because we had an idiot uh, at the Fox Theater on uh, Sunday night that was a cult member, if anyone didn't pick up on that. Okay, and he was using a loudspeaker, blasting his cultic views. He's one this Pentecostal. I could tell by his baptism in Jesus' name only, and, and repent and be baptized. He's using Acts 2.38. Instantaneous cult. He doesn't believe in the Trinity, so it's instantaneous cult. But the demonic was using him as a distraction for our group, okay? But let's, let's, let's understand something then. When you're reading Acts 2.38, and Peter's giving his speech to who? Gentiles? Who is Peter talking to? The nation of Israel. His speech in Acts chapter 2 is talking to Israel, and he is specifically telling them to be saved, not eternally. He's not saying saved because they're already, when they were cut to the heart by his speech, that indicates they're saved already when they were cut to the heart. But he says, you need to be saved from this perverse generation. What generation? In general? No, no. The generation that rejected their own Messiah who is under the judgment of 70 AD of the unpardonable sin, he says, you need to repent and be baptized in order to avoid 70 AD, to escape from this perverse generation. It has nothing to do with salvation. And unfortunately, this is where all the cults capitalize on Acts 2.38. Church of Christ does this. Oneness Pentecostals do this. Every cult will do this. But if you read Peter, he is not talking about getting eternal life. He is saying, you, in order for you Jews to escape the penalty of 70 AD, the first thing you do is you need to repent. Repent of what, though? 
There is something the Jewish nation needs to repent of. It has to go back to Acts chapter, I'm sorry, uh, Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, the official declaration of the nation from the Sanhedrin is, we recognize that he does powers by the power of Beelzebub. We do not deny he does power. He has power, but we say that power is coming from Beelzebub, the prince of demons, not the Holy Spirit. Hence the term blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is denying that Messiah is doing the miracles by the works of the third person of the Trinity. That's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means. So the first thing they need to do is stop the rejection of the Messiah and stop with the thinking that he was doing things by the power of Beelzebub. That needs to be repented of in their minds. That he is truly the Messiah and his works is a, are, are of God. That has to be repented of. Now what about baptism? Because you will not find this given into a Gentile context. When the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? What does Paul say? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what? You will be saved. He didn't say baptism. How are you saved? John 3, 16. How you, how, does it include baptism? No. So why is Peter including baptism? Because I can tell, and he says this, and the cult member across the street kept saying, hey, are you baptized in the name of Jesus? And instead of the Trinitarian formula that's given in the Great Commission, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why did he keep saying, you need to be baptized in Jesus' name? You need to be baptized in Jesus' name. Because the, number one, the one that's Pentecostal don't believe in the Trinity. Number one. But number two, he doesn't understand the Jewish context. Why is Peter not using the Trinitarian formula? He says, you need to be baptized. You Jewish people need to repent of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And number two, you need to be baptized. You, you understand Jewish context, what baptism meant. Baptism means I identify with the one in whom I'm being baptized with, the group or the person. And so what the Jewish people need to do in order to distinguish themselves from being a proselyte, of John, a proselyte to Judaism, uh, uh, being even a, 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 a repentant baptized Jew from John, is now they must identify with the Messiah, okay, publicly. They must publicly now announce their allegiance and break from rabbinic Judaism. And the only way you can do that by people physically seeing that is being baptized. Once they did that, guys, they were cut off from all Jewish society at that point. That's why so many of them wouldn't do it. That's why in 1 Peter, he's getting on to the Jewish audience there for not being baptized because they were secretly following Messiah but not, wouldn't publicly identify with him. John chapter 12, verse what, 42, 43, 44, somewhere in that neighborhood, it said many of the religious leaders believed but would not publicly confess him. So when we say, we talk about baptism, baptism is your public profession, the faith, but for you Gentiles, you don't pay the price that a Jew would pay in the first century because they would cut you off by identifying with Jesus of Nazareth. So what Peter is saying is you want to escape the penalty of the unpardonable sin, 
you crucified your own Messiah. So they were cut to the heart. The cutting of the heart means they got saved. And then they asked Peter, what shall we do? And he is saying, now I need you to repent of that mentality that rejected the Messiah, and I need you to identify with Jesus now. And that's why he says, be baptized in Jesus' name instead of the Trinitarian formula. It is to distinguish that baptism from any other Jewish baptisms which were there at the time. And then it says 3,000 were added to, to the church that day. Now, understanding that takes a whole new uh, look at the book of Acts because it's a transitional book. And notice, he goes, then the forgiveness of sins will happen and the Holy Spirit will be given to you. Well, why is there a delay in the giving of the Holy Spirit? Because right now, if you get saved, the Holy Spirit in instantaneously indwells you. But in Acts, there's a delay in the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because it goes back to, uh, back to Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus gives Peter and the apostles the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom are authority. And the keys of the kingdom are meant to open the doors of salvation to people groups. So, by the time that Jesus is on the scene, there are actually three people groups in the world. There are Jews, there are Samaritans, there are Gentiles. Therefore, in the book of Acts, you will watch Peter. He will have to be there to authenticate every time the gospel goes to one of the three groups. So in Acts chapter two, he's there to authenticate it, and then he says, if you will do this, you will receive the Holy Spirit. So it's not like, I'll get saved and there's a second blessing. That's, that's Pentecostalism, that's wrong. It's because they're taking passages that were meant for a transitional period and why there's a delay in the Holy Spirit because Peter has to be there. So Peter authenticates it, they're given the Holy Spirit. Then Philip goes to Samaria and he, he, he sees a revival happening in Samaria. But they're not given the Holy Spirit. Why? Who's not there? Peter's not there. So guess what Peter has to do? He has to go to Samaria. He has to go over there, lay hands, and authenticate it. Boom, they receive the Holy Spirit. Then Peter, who is not an apostle to the Gentiles like the apostle Paul, is then sent to Cornelius. And he has a hard time doing that one, if you recall. And why? Because that's the last people group. He's opened the keys to the Jews. He's opened the keys to the Samaritans. And he's got one more door to open to the Gentiles. And Cornelius will be the first Gentile that gets saved in the church age. But why is Paul not doing it since he's the apostle to the Gentiles? Because Peter holds the keys. Once Peter goes over to Cornelius, he authenticates it, boom, they receive the Holy Spirit, keys open. Now, no longer does Peter need the keys anymore. All three people groups are open. And therefore, this eliminates Catholicism in the, the pontifex succession of popes having the keys of Peter. It ends when Peter opens the door to Cornelius. Okay, that's when it, the, the keys of the kingdom end at that point. But that is why there is a delay in the giving of the Holy Spirit because Peter must authenticate it. And once he does, then there's one baptism, there's one spirit, and it comes instantaneously. But this is what the cults don't do. The cults don't know background. They don't know Jewish history. They don't know Jewish culture. And so they'll take a passage, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized uh, and you'll be saved and baptized in the name of Jesus. And people say, okay, 
Okay, and without any, without any background, I call this simpleton types of interpretations, where the person just reads a text, takes it for face value, and doesn't realize what it's trying to say, with ignoring the context, right? But this is what we're talking about, all back to verse 7, the destruction of, of Jerusalem. Now, let me add one more flavor to this. The believers who refuse to identify with Messiah by, baptized, by being baptized suffered physical judgment because of it. They were saved, but because they refused to identify with Messiah and they went back into Judaism to escape Jew-on-Jew -Jew persecution, guess what happened to them in 70 AD? They were killed. Because the writer of Hebrews is written about 64, 65 AD, and the writer of Hebrews is telling them, if you guys go back, something worse will happen to you than what happened at Kadesh Barnea. They all died in the desert. I guarantee you, you will die too. If you monkey around and trample the blood of Christ and by going back into Judaism and not identifying with him anymore. If you do that, you're gonna die. And you know what? They did. By 70 AD, those believers were killed because they, they refused to identify with the Messiah. They didn't want to get cut off. And let me explain being cut off. Nicodemus, for example, was a very wealthy man. He was very wealthy. But because Nicodemus identified with the Messiah, guess what happened to Nicodemus? He died as a pauper. He lost everything. No one would do business with them. No one would do any interactions with them. This is why in the, books of, in the book of Acts, they are selling everything and donating it to the church because everyone's being cut off. It's not communism. It's we can't live. No one will do business with me anymore. Just imagine you having your business and no one would touch you anymore because you identify with the Nazarene. So this is what the book of Acts is going through. This is why the Corinth church had to raise money for the Jerusalem church and helping them get through this persecution that they were undergoing. Okay, let's get back to this. That's a long story short. <coughs> then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Why are they not worthy? He sent the invitation out, but why would he tell them they're not worthy? Because they rejected it. They deemed themselves not worthy. They don't want to go to the wedding feast. So he says they're not worthy of it then. They don't want it, then they're not worthy of it. That's the idea, okay? It's not that they weren't worthy, it's they made themselves not worthy of it by the rejection of it. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, what does the highways represent? Highways go outside of what country? Israel. Okay? So I need you to go outside of Israel now. Okay? And, what, and that's exactly what the apostles did, because the apostles were clumped up there in Jerusalem. Okay? Everyone's having a good time, because everyone's together. The apostles are there. And what's the, how did he get them out of there, though? He wanted them to hit the highways. What's the first thing he did to them? He sent them persecution. He used persecution to scatter the apostles out and move them and get them moving out into their missionary work. And so uh, there's a lesson here that God will sometimes use negative factors in your life to move you. Okay? And don't discount the negative. Because they were all clumped to having a good time. Say, hey, man, this is great. We're having a kumbaya. We're all the apostles are here. Isn't this wonderful? 
uh-uh, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You need to spread out. And so he sent them persecution. So they went to the highways, okay? And Paul was one of the major guys on the highways, right? And as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. Now, this is highways goes outside of Israel. Now you're talking about Gentiles, okay? So the Gentiles are now being included in this. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. What does it mean, both bad and good? Don't you just want to bring good people in to the wedding? What is this concept of he found people but, and, and included both good and bad? What is the nature of salvation? Is it earned? It's a gift. So does it depend on the moral agency of the person to accept that gift? No. So some people are better morally, some people are worse morally. Doesn't matter because if you still commit one sin, you're still guilty of the entire law. So the idea is among the Gentiles, there's moral Gentiles, there's immoral. It doesn't matter because it's still a free gift. It's a free gift that can't be earned nor deserved. So it includes all stripes of morality among Gentiles. Because you don't, you don't earn your righteousness, Right? It's, it's a foreign righteousness that's given to you, okay? So that's why it includes both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. So what does that, that last phrase mean? The wedding hall was filled with guests. So they all made it. They all came, and they went to the wedding. They're at the wedding. They're at the palace, okay? They made it. They're there, okay? I want to emphasize that really closely because a lot of people just ignore this. Did they all get there, that got, that, 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 who they went and invited? Whoever took the invitation, did they get there? Yes, they made it. They're there. They filled the wedding hall. They're there. Okay? Everyone clear on that? You sure? Because the next phrase will depend on if you really believe that. But when the king came in to see the guests... He saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. So I'll go back to my original question. Did everybody who accepted the invitation make it to the banquet hall? Yes, they are there. But we have a problem now. You're not getting in unless you got the invitation right? So you're there because you accepted the invitation and you made it. But we've got a problem with one old boy. He's not dressed appropriately. We're pivoting. We're pivoting in the text, okay? Something has changed. We're pivoting to something different because we all agree that everyone made it, okay? You can't make it without getting the invitation. And the invitation goes out to everybody, as you know. But they're, they're there, they're there. So everyone's here, but we got one old boy that's not dressed properly. So what's the background on this? How did you come in without a wedding garment? So what is the assumption of the, the king? Friend, how did you come in without a wedding? What is the assumption that the king has on the person who accepted the invitation? Why are you not dressed appropriately? 
You, I invited you. You knew you were coming to a wedding. We were, we, this is not some soccer game that I invited you to. This is not, uh, you know, um, whatever type of event. Rusty's Pizza Parlor, trophy event. No, no. No. I invited you to a wedding and you showed up without wedding clothes. The assumption is, why didn't you put wedding clothes on? But the, what, dig deeper. What is the assumption digging at? Who's responsible for their wedding clothes? The guy is. He didn't dress appropriately for the occasion. And the guy's speechless. So it's like showing up to a wedding and you, 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 know, you, you're, you have a bathing suit on. Really, I mean, you're, you're in a Speedo and you showed up. And you're like, I'm here. Now, uh, the Speedo garment will we'll get a little bit further. I'm, I'm using that for a reason, so. I'm using that for a reason, the Speedo. So you, sh you showed up in a Speedo to a wedding, okay? It's worse than that, by the way. The illustration is actually worse than what I'm even pretending, okay? It's worse than that because it's, the, the, the real issue is showing up naked, okay? So let's just use Speedo. That's better than thinking about nakedness. So the guy's in a Speedo, and he's like, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing? So the assumption is you didn't put on wedding clothes. You're responsible to dress yourself and come dressed appropriately to the event. You knew it was a wedding, but you didn't dress appropriately. You see how it's pivoted. We're not talking about invitations anymore. The fact that that guy accepted the invitation, he knew he was going to a wedding, is now responsible to get ready for the wedding. It has now shifted into discipleship. It's gone from salvation, and, the, the, and Jesus has shifted it to how does a disciple prepare for this eschatological reality of the messianic kingdom? Okay, you following me? Okay. Here's another example of, of another passage that lends support to this passage. This is Revelation 19, and it's referring to the bride of the Messiah, okay? Which in this passage, going to the highways, going to the Gentiles, would include what organization? The church, right? Going to the highways means that Israel is now put in the timeout. We're using the church now. So here's the church called the bride in Revelation 19 at the second coming. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for what? Here's the eschatological feast. The marriage of the Lamb has come. And so now we have an indication when it's coming. Second coming uh, when he inaugurates it, okay? <clears throat> and his wife has made herself ready. How has she been made ready? And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is what? Read it real closely. Does it say the righteousness of, the, of them or the righteousness of Christ? No, it says the righteous acts of who? The saints, which indicates reward. The fine linen is seen as a reward to the bride for her righteous acts. Hence, 
This is the idea of going to a wedding and having the proper attire. How would I know if I'm going to, if I'm putting on the proper attire? Because of my righteous acts in which I live, gain me the wedding clothes to be able to be put on to be at the wedding. To be found without wedding clothes is to be found without rewards. Are, we, are you connecting? Okay, that's what we're saying. Revelation 16 gives a warning. It's a parenthetical right in the middle of Armageddon. It gives a parenthetical all of a sudden, and it says just right out of nowhere, behold, I'm coming as a thief. Coming as a thief is not a reference to the second coming. Coming as a thief is a reference to the rapture. So it's a parenthetical warning to the church, okay? If it was the second coming, you know the day and the hour actually of the second coming because you can count it down from the signing of the peace covenant to the midpoint to the end of the tribulation. You can count it. You know exactly what day it is. So it, it, the second coming cannot be referred to as a thief in the night. It is referring to the rapture. Okay, but what's the issue? Blessed is he who watches. So you have to be spiritually alert. And keeps what? His garments. Lest he walk naked. There's the Speedo reference. You get what I'm saying? Okay? There's the nakedness. And they see his shame. Oh. So I told you it's worse than a Speedo. It refers to if you do not come in with the right wedding clothes, you will be naked, naked in front of the king, in front of everybody at the wedding hall. Blessed is he who keeps his garments, that has his garments, his wedding garments on, lest they see you naked. And if they see you naked, it means they see no rewards on you and you have shame. Is shame there in the Bible with believers? Yes. And now little children abide in him that when he appears, abiding in him is a fellowship obedience issue, not a salvation issue. That when he appears, when he's gonna appear? Rapture, takes us to the judgment seat that we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. There's the shame. Shame is equal to nakedness. Nakedness is equal to having no rewards. Now let me go back to this thing. I come as a thief. You all know the, the phrase thief in the night, right? It's not what you think it means. Thief in the night refers to the high priest and his activities that he did with the, the, the priests that were on guard at night. He was given the term thief in the night because the high priest would come on occasion and do a, 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 a surprise search of the temple grounds to see who was awake and who was asleep. So they called the high priest the thief in the night because they didn't know when he was coming. He could come at any point in time, so that kept the priests that were on duty awake during the different watches of the night at the temple precincts. You had to stay awake. So on occasion, if the high priest showed up as a thief in the night, or like a thief in the night, and he found a, a priest sleeping like that, do you know what he did to him? The penalty for falling asleep on the job is that the high priest would get the torch and light his garments on fire as he slept there. So he's sleeping, and his garments are catching on fire, starting to smell the smoke. He wakes up, 
he realizes his garments are on fire, what's the first thing he does? He tears off his clothes and runs out stark naked out of the temple because his clothes are on fire. And now that he's naked and running, he is now ashamed because he was caught sleeping, not watching, and now he has no reward. That's what thief in the night means, and it's a direct application to the church. The church is to remain awake and alert lest you be caught sleeping and be without rewards and be naked. And hence, not ashamed, but confidence if you have the rewards that he's provided. Now, what's the penalty? There's the penalty here. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. That's not a reference to hell. Never has been. It's only found in Matthew three times, and I'll explain this. Outer darkness does not mean hell. It doesn't mean that. It's a Jewish idiom. I'll explain it. Hang in there. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Another Jewish idiom. In fact, the whole 13 and 14 are Jewish idioms. So bind him hand and foot, Take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, many are, uh, many are called, but few are chosen. Let's unpack that then. So what is outer darkness? Outer darkness is a Jewish idiom. It's only found in Matthew. It's not found in Mark, Luke, or John, or any of the other gospels. It's only found in Matthew because it's a Jewish audience. And in Matthew, it, 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 outer darkness means exclusion from the eschatological feast. Okay. So when they would have a feast in, in the ancient world, you would have, your, you would have a, 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 a wall or a gate in the front of your house, and then you would open that gate and people would come in and you would feast inside, and the, the gates and the doors would be shut and you would feast inside. But outside in, in the village was just pitch blackness. It was dark, it was at night. The only where, where the light was was in the feast. So outer darkness does not mean hell. It means being put out on the street of Israel in a, some Jewish town where there's no lights and you're outside of the feast, okay? You're put in a dark street, basically. What it means then is not hell. It means exclusion from reward. They're excluded from the wedding celebration, which is a reward of the Messianic age, it doesn't mean they're excluded from the kingdom. It means they're excluded from the reward of the feast. Does that make sense? Okay. You're still there. Remember, they're there in the palace. They're in the palace. But they can't participate in the feast, which is a reward for only special people who have rewards, who have wedding clothes. Okay. Binding. Bind him hand and foot. Another Jewish idiom. What does it mean? To bind someone hand and foot means I'm restricting them. Therefore, what are they restricted from? They're restricted from ruling and reigning and different privileges and authorities in the Messianic kingdom. Does it mean they're not there? It means that, yeah, of course there means that they're there. It just means they're restricted. That's what binding hand and foot means. You're restricted now from certain things that you could have a privy to that other people have. And weeping and gnashing of teeth is simple. It's a Jewish idiom. It just means extreme regret, extreme remorse, 
over loss, and sometimes it's coupled with self-anger. You're angry at yourself for what you, what you lost. That's what weeping and gnashing of teeth mean. Now, weeping and gnashing of teeth can be used, people in hell, and it's used there, and it's used for believers too, because it just means extreme regret. Ah, okay. So let me unpack something a little bit more. Let's look at the other two times it, outer darkness is used in Matthew, the Jewish epistle. So we can understand that we're not going crazy here, and this is referring to hell. The first time it's used is Matthew 8, 12. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. He's talking about the faith of the centurion. And he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For what? What did we just study? What are they going to sit down with for? The eschatological feast. So he's, he's referring to the feast here. They will sit down and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. People say, well, see, he's referring to Israel, and, and they rejected him, and they're going to be thrown into hell. That's not what it's talking about at all. Not at all. Because you know why? In hermeneutics, there's the principle called the analogy of Scripture. And in the analogy of Scripture is Scripture interprets Scripture. You don't get to interpret Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. So if I don't know what the sons of the kingdom mean, I must go find it somewhere else in the Bible where it does explain where it means. So I'm stuck here. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast in outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing teeth. We already know weeping and gnashing teeth is extreme regret. Let's define sons of the kingdom. This is Matthew chapter 13, the bottom passage. I didn't put the, the text there. It's Matthew 13, it's in the mystery kingdom parables, and it's Jesus now explaining the wheat and the tares to the disciples. And he then defines the sons of the kingdom. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, note, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. What did he just explain? Who are the sons of the kingdom? The good seeds, saved individuals, as compared to tares who are unsaved. Messiah just interpreted verse 12 to you, saying, but the sons of the kingdom, which are believers, will be cast into outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What do you mean? Because the faith of the centurion, he said, was greater than any believer in Israel. Did you catch that? The faith of the centurion, he says, I have not found any greater faith than what this guy is doing in all of Israel. And that's among even his own apostles. Do you see the statement that he just made? He said, there's no Jew here that has greater faith than the centurion guy. Now, will they grow in that? Yes, of course they will. The apostles will grow. But at that time, when he made that statement, the, the, the centurion had the greatest faith in all of Israel, and he's a Gentile. And he's making a contrast. And he's saying, you see this guy right here, the centurion guy? He didn't even have the background that you have. But he has more faith. I'm telling you, because of his great faith, he will have more reward 
than other believers who will be excluded from rewards and they will weep and gnash their teeth because they lost rewards because of their little faith compared to his great faith, even though they all make it to the kingdom. That's what he is saying. And he's making, it's not a good statement on Israel at the time, by the way, when he says that. Okay, so then, so what we have then is Messiah interprets what the sons of the kingdom mean. I don't need a commentary. I, I, I have Messiah, him interpreting, this is called the analogy of scripture, and scripture interprets scripture. And therefore, I now know and understand what outer darkness means. It means being excluded from rewards. Okay? The other, the other passage that's used, and I'll end on this, Matthew 25, talking about the, the, the parable of the talents. All three are servants. One doubles it, the other one, uh, two double it, the other one buries it. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy what, unbeliever? No, it's your servant. He's called him a servant. You knew I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seeds, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And if my coming, I would have received back with my own interest. So take this talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, talking about a loss of reward, because of bearing your talent, even what he has will be taken away. He's basically stripped of all rewards. And cast this unbeliever, no, unprofitable, he defines what kind of servant it is. This believer is unprofitable, which means the believer doesn't produce any rewards. He's done nothing in his life to reserve a, a, deserve a reward. So put him in outer darkness. He is excluded from the messianic feast. He's in the kingdom, but he doesn't get to participate. And there we're gonna be weeping and gnashing of teeth because he's gonna have extreme regret for what he lost as far as rewards are concerned. And that is how you interpret the parable of the, the, the wedding invitation. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.